You are listening to Ayahuasca Talks, and I am your host, Rebecca Hayden. On this show, we discuss our ayahuasca integration journeys. Using hypnosis to journey within can be a powerful way to begin or continue to heal and grow, and to tap into that wise inner voice as a source of guidance. To find out more, please visit RebeccaHayden.com or email me at Rebecca.Hayden at gmail.com. To learn more about microdosing ayahuasca legally, please visit ayahuascamicrodosing.com and use the coupon code TALKS to get a 10% discount on your entire order. If you're on Facebook, please join the Ayahuasca Integration Community and feel free to reach out to me directly. Welcome to another edition of Ayahuasca Talks. Today, my guest is Jonathan Dickinson, and Jonathan lives in Tijuana, Mexico. He's been working with Ibogaine since 2009, and one of his major projects is a virtual intensive outpatient recovery program for people after going through the Ibogaine for detox. Welcome, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Um, so I got in touch with you after reading your salon article, and I wanted you to just kind of give an overview of that so uh, so the audience kind of knows uh, how this discussion came about. Okay, so if anybody's interested, the title of the article is Why Mental Health Researchers Are Studying Psychedelics All Wrong. And so it was a piece that I co-authored with um, a good friend of mine, Dimitri Mugianis. Mm-hmm. And what we were looking at was the efforts that are being made to take psychedelics, which have been, you know, for, I want to say for millennia, but even if we're just looking in more recent Western contexts, over the past, you know, 60, 70 years, um, been used primarily outside of clinical environments. Um, they've been, you know, involved in revolutionary discourse and the anti-war movement and all the way um, to sort of people looking for mental health benefits from it, but looking through either religious or spiritual practices or other kinds of sort of lay approaches to um, to therapy or um, improvement of one's state, right? Just uh, mm-hmm. going into to psychonautics. There's all kinds of contexts and intentions that people have used. So what we're looking at was this intention and celebration very specifically of taking psychedelics now and placing them into the mental health uh, framework. And I'm talking here about like the regulated um, uh, practice of psychiatry and therapy. And so, I mean, the, the thing that we sort of pointed at most specifically was the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual that at least in the United States and in um, a lot of countries and other countries in North America, like Canada, and then you'll see it through Latin America. That's the standard for how we diagnose things like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, or there's many different diagnoses that end up there. And so we were looking at sort of the existing critiques of that framework. They're fairly (laughs) widespread, including 
amongst its own authors. Yes, yes. I've read about that recently. And and actually, that's a discussion that I want to have a little later on. But mm. I felt that the article was more or less because all this, uh, this effort is underway and successfully so to legalize psychedelics, that it seems to be all funneled through clinical work and mm-hmm, through that, mm-hmm. that paradigm that you mentioned. And um, and and you felt that, you know, this is going to leave out a whole other area of these practices that have been very successful and and that there are issues with with um, going through that particular route because of the requirements for stats to meet up with expectations and people feel like they have to fall within those categories and there's almost an obligation, you know, to feel like they have to say, yes, this worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were kind of looking at you know, the psychedelic renaissance uh, sort of portrays itself as this vanguard um, advancing care. And at the same time, we're saying, well, it hasn't actually integrated any of these very relevant critiques about the whole framework and industry that it's moving itself into. And here we actually start to see that it mimics some of the problematic aspects of that industry already. So let's get into examples and and situations you come up against just, you know, real life situations where people have had uh, have not successfully, you know, gone through that that process, the clinical process of of psychedelic um, administration in within that framework. Like I just wanted to open up by saying I have never been through that. I mean, I've certainly, you know, been through um, uh, the you know, uh, mainstream approach to treating depression, which, you know, spectacularly failed in my case. And I, I know many others, which is one of the reasons I suspect that psychedelics becoming so popular and, um, and came out of it kind of like, you know, worse than, than I went in. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, I'm not speaking for everyone and I haven't gone through the, uh, that approach with psychedelics, um, and I know that it has been successful for some, but yeah, it's important to also see that you know we're all unique and have different needs, and and to see that it's not necessarily a one size fits all um, uh, proposition, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, a good place where I always start thinking about this issue is from my own experience because it also helped me with depression significantly too like i went um through a difficult experience with psychiatry when i was Mm -hmm. in high school like i I was got put on a whole bunch of different antidepressants and um it was for reasons of my behavior not because i was complaining about depression like i wasn't you know I, w- I was frustrated, <laughs> you know, so it was, um, it was something where I felt sort of pressured to go through that in order to avoid other ramifications of, you know, not doing well in school or being um, a bit of an activist and protesting in ways that people didn't appreciate or whatever. So um, coming off of those, I was kind of emotionally frozen and sort of stuck in this very negative spiral that I couldn't come out of. And I found uh, mushrooms, you know, after years of that, you know, sort of helped 
move everything. It helped open everything up in a way that, you know, at the time really felt like an overnight sort of miracle cure almost like that. Like I, I'm just saying that because that term gets thrown around a lot, but it certainly felt that way to me. Sure. And it genuinely does for a lot of us. Yeah. I mean, there's this experience of sort of sudden wellness that, you know, can happen after uh, any kind of sort of, you know, major event like that, mm-hmm. that sort of gives you a different perspective. So yes. But the next time that I was having a difficult time, because it didn't stop that from happening forever. For Right. Know, the next time um, and this I is went. Most of the time with, with most of us, right? Sure. Yeah. It's not like, you know, the life's challenges and, and struggles are, are gone, you know. Mm-hmm. So the next time that they, it came up, um, and I went to, to mushrooms, it didn't work. I didn't have this sort of immediate sudden wellness experience, you know? Yeah. And I, at different times, because I became so fascinated by those substances, at other times I had really difficult experiences that mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with when they were happening or afterwards um, for quite a while. Like, you know, they, they didn't make that much sense. Right. So. I think that what one of the problems of calling them like antidepressants or treatments like that is part of the reason why they work or why they've been in um, like informative for me in my life is because they're inefficient, because they're nonlinear, because, you know, all of these things that are sort of qualities of the experience. And then what we're trying to do is place them into this framework that sort of expects to have these linear results and to be able to track them in a linear way. And especially the biggest thing I think when we're calling them treatments like this is that we expect them to be quite efficient. Yes. In fact, you know, there's been discussion around changing and not calling them medicines. But, you know, the reason we do is because there's illness and we know that. Um, these, we know that we're experiencing a lack of wellness and that they do help us with that. But, um, you know, the way that I've come to understand it and many of us have is that it's a relationship. It's a relationship with the medicines, Mm -hmm. you know, try, try that out in, in a clinical setting. I don't know, maybe they would be open to that idea. Maybe they'd be left out of the room. I don't know. (laughs) Again, I, I do admit I have no experience of, of that scenario, but, um, I don't I don't hear it coming up a lot in those circles, this discussion of the relationship that we have with these medicines, the relationship we have with ourselves, how this is a beginning. And 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 I, I think that it points to um, what you'd mentioned is that under these circumstances, when you're in this system that requires uh, this hard data that, you know, that tells this one story about outcomes that there's a lot of pressure to meet those, those standards and, mm-hmm. and not everybody's going to be able to do that genuinely because um, changing your whole relationship with yourself is, is quite the road and it does not happen overnight. Overnight, you get a sensation of what it could be like and, and the fact that it can happen mm-hmm. and all kinds of other, you know, experiences that are miraculous because you discover, wow, I'm so much more than I thought I was. And there's so many more possibilities in this, you know, existence than I thought 
there were. So yeah, it, it's amazing. You know, I, I'll never downplay that. That's that's mm -hmm. phenomenal. That's worth it just for that. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, not everybody does have that experience of sudden wellness. But even for those of us who have at certain moments, or those who will, you know, it's something where sometimes it is just a vision of what you know is possible to achieve and that can be useful to work with but it's not like you know you suddenly have arrived at the end of the the road yet you know yes um, so, so do you feel that they're leaving that out i mean i there's a lot of talk about integration around clinical practice too so i found that a positive thing but you know, tell me that you, you'd mentioned a couple of cases that you'd come across where where uh, it just they didn't really fit into that that way of, of practicing this medicine of, um, of benefiting from it. And what do you feel the pitfalls were and and how do you feel that alternative approaches um, really, you know, meet needs that are outside of that uh, that framework? Well, I mean, when we're critiquing the DSM, there's lots of ways of going about it. I mean, the main basis of it is that it's not a scientific document. It's, I mean, when it was produced, like it's a, it's a list of symptoms that people have. Yeah, because they're, 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 um, the illness is, is created based on just symptoms, right? Okay. Yeah. It's but so besides the DSM, which, mm -hmm. which we can get into, how we look at illness and mm -hmm. how we feel about all that, um, are there practices specific that uh, you felt um, that you discovered didn't work out with, with certain people and why? And I mean, in the alternative world, there's every kind of imaginable approach to these medicines, right? I mean, I, I learn about more every single day. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily about the specific instruments that people play or the music or the or the approach. I think what it what we're talking about more are the the set and setting, like to reduce okay. it, you know. And so one way of um the, so the set is sort of your mindset going okay. In, you know where your setting is maybe your your environment okay um, and that could be things sort of external to your immediate environment in your life like your who knows your family situation your um your financial situation it could be things immediately in your environment the the scents and the um the sounds and the um, things that are there to touch, like the, the comfortable or uncomfortable aspects of the space, the temperature in them, all those things. But your set is your own expectations and your cognitive and emotional resources that you have to draw going in, as well as your, your memories and everything. Um, so when we're looking at the clinical practices, there's a major influence on that set, like what we kind of expect to see be able to happen when we take that medicine. So I think what you're talking about, about developing a relationship with medicine, and, and, and I don't know, I don't wanna to generalize too much. I'll, I'll talk about my own experience. So when sure. I was looking 
at psychedelics at first. I had read a book called Writing on Drugs. And this was in <laughs> this was in high school. And it was like it was going through literary history, looking at all of these famous works and the drugs that their authors have been using when they wrote them. So um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, mm -hmm. and her her experiences, I think, with with opium. I'm I'm gonna mess up the details if I try to do, it, but um, but I was fascinated because I was a, really into literature, and what I realized was, oh, all these beautiful things that I experience when I'm reading, people are consciously creating them, and they're doing that partially because they're having these experiences, like their imagination is lit up, either spontaneously or through dreams or through these drugs. And so when I was looking at them, I was seeing it as this way to sort of expand into this creative world of possibilities and be able to create my, my life or my, my story in a, in a certain way. Sure. And I think when I looked at other cultures who had been using them, the stories that came were you know, being able to ascend to a higher plane or descend to a lower plane or right. one way or another to be able to interact with some entities or spirits. You have, you know, um, fetish cultures or, you know, that um, very focused on ritual or animist cultures or whatever, but whatever it is, the, the set or going into those experiences is very much distinct it's about forming relationships with either the tangible or intangible world mm -hmm. in certain ways that maybe have maybe are expected to have some sort of an impact on our physical or mental health like they're certainly used for healing but the the whole framework is so much more um, expansive and it's mm -hmm. It's holistic in the sense that it, there's a place for everybody in the culture from the elders to the children. Um, there's, a, there's a framework that sort of includes all of the experiences that one can have and, and this. And what I think we were trying to take aim at, just going back to that article, yeah, was that yeah. the the existing framework that we see in the psychiatric profession, um, specifically with the DSM, but also just sort of in general, is so inequipped to be able to prepare people for something larger. And really the set that is described is just like the thing that ends up in the media, especially is just this kind of overnight transformation of wartime trauma or um, sort of these really horrific things. So people, when they're going into those environment, those, those treatments are expecting those because that's what they're being sold. Mm -hmm. And that expectation, like when we talk about psychedelics, the set and the setting, our expectations influence strongly the experience that we have. You know. Yeah, well, everything does, right? For sure. Um, so you'd mentioned that, that there was, you know, uh, a couple of people who experienced, you know, had some some really 
harmful experiences or negative experiences and you felt that that was a result of those expectations or or just how it was approached and you know i i, I mean you know it's important to learn about them uh, but also to know that in alternative settings there are all kinds of possibilities too both positive and and mm -hmm. people have not so positive experiences myself included mm -hmm. so but yeah, I can appreciate what you're saying that they're trying to fit it into this um, this narrow idea of you take this and then you're all better, um, and and that that can be harmful uh, because of uh, you know people having those expectations and then feeling like uh, they failed somehow. Um, but I I will tell you that I think that this to some degree it's not spoken about as much, but it, it does happen in 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 every other aspect of it too. Like, especially because it's tied to spirituality. And I, I think that, you know, our our culture carries around its fair share of guilt too. So I think that sometimes that plays into it that, you know, um, if, if you don't feel better, if you go back into those states that you approached medicines to deal with, that you feel like you failed and you know, we have to contend with this at some point down the road. And that's why integration is so important. That's why this is my area, because it's just where I feel most comfortable. I have nothing but admiration for people who are willing to, you know, take the risks and and, and offer medicine. Um, and I'm sure that they're called, you know, so strongly, just as I am for integration and, and you too, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, everybody has their area. And I, I do think that there's there's areas that can be improved all over, you know, on both sides mm -hmm. of things, because mm -hmm. it's not as though it's, it's straight and narrow on the alternative side. It's all over the map. I suspect even in a clinical setting that there's all kinds of different companies that approach it different ways and they're learning as, as they go. And we're learning as we go too. Um, I, I think that even, you know, in the scientific world and, and in a lot of areas of modern culture, um, I think there's really a, a discomfort with with being wrong, with with failing, with making mistakes, and that's the only way we're ever going to progress. In fact, this is a huge lesson that I got from the medicines: is that I have to get comfortable, you know, with that because that's how I learn, and that's called experience, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think that there's going to be everywhere there's going to be people who do really good work and take really good care of people and prepare people in a really good mm -hmm. way and help them integrate afterwards and, and and everywhere from indigenous contacts to underground environments and all kind of like there's going to be people who are not there to care for people you know and mm -hmm. that's um that's just a that's just a fact i think when I think about this issue and how it plays out in particular. I'm, I mean, I'm mostly mo mo most focused on Ibogaine. So right. okay. the, the story that um, people hear is that, you know, people, somebody came down, strung out on heroin, and in a relatively short time frame overnight, or, you know, maybe the story got out there that ah, it takes a couple of days for your energy to kind of climb back up, you know. But regardless, in a, in a relatively short amount of time, there's people who go through relatively painlessly without going through much, if any, withdrawal. And then they don't feel like using opiates anymore. 
you know? And um, what happens then, I think, is, and, and we see this specifically with the companies and organizations that are out there, is that that somehow gets tracked onto, okay, well, if it makes people not want to use opiates anymore, <laughs> then it might be a solution to the fact that people are out there overdosing off of opiates at record numbers and we have this opioid crisis. So, but this is a, a major, major cognitive leap and without actually being there and having this kind of hands-on direct experience of working around people or struggling with those problems and understanding the context um, that, you know, that it's a, it's a dramatic mischaracterization of the experience or, or the potential that it has, you know what I yeah. mean? So I think that's what the media picks up on because there's not a, a deep level of, of journalism that goes into it. And, you know, companies are picking up on it because it's a way to bring in a lot of uh, really quick investments to take companies public and make a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of motivations for why to, to use that, but it's, it, it can be quite divorced from people, especially when the, when the people who are working with it or who are investing in it don't have that relationship with it in the first place so how can they you know how could they contextualize it as sure. people coming into this environment to build a relationship with it they don't there's not one to to offer yeah and it's a different approach and mm -hmm. um and i mean again i just i think that it's it's far more varied than than we imagine but i i can certainly see the pitfalls in on, on both sides of it um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I do, what I'm concerned about too, is that the legalization is all going to be geared toward um, a clinical approach and that uh, there won't be any room for people practicing these medicines in, in other ways, you know, mm -hmm. um, because personally, it, it wouldn't be my choice. I mean, I, I might be curious about what that experience is like, and I would do it, but mm -hmm. if I was... Uh, you know, remembering now the state that I was in um, and the experience like you that I had in the psychiatric community, uh, the last place I would have wanted to find myself <laughs> would be in a clinical environment. And in fact, it took a lot for me to go into that environment for other purposes for a long time because I, I came out of it with, with PTSD and, you know, um, mm -hmm. yeah, in much worse shape than I went in a lot of times. But um, yeah. Moving on from that, what I want to discuss now is 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 to get into that level of discussion that I think both you and I really relish, which is, you know, on the more conceptual level of um, understanding it it from you know a bigger picture standpoint. So um, when we talk about when you mentioned the DSM, um, you know, this is a book that basically has every what mental ailment. Um, that is is known in the medical community and you know what i think is very interesting and promising is that people are starting to question it and the reason why i think that's promising um, is because i think that there are a lot of possibilities around this um, in in having a bigger discussion rather than these symptoms equal that medication or even that medicine it's understanding because you know 
from my experience and many, many other people's experience with these medicines, the driving, you know, healing force, besides being able to experience what it's like to feel loved, which is something that unfortunately, um, we don't experience a, a lot in this world and don't promote it in our society a lot. Um, but it's also understanding how we came to this place where we're feeling depressed, addicted, or whatever. What led to that instead of calling it a disease and, and matching a medicine with it, having some deep insights around it. Like, um, you know, is it a disease or are we creating a society that is producing an inordinate amount, well, I'm, clearly we are, of depressed, addicted, stressed people? You know, uh, what is it that, that, that creates that and how can we change that? That's the integrative piece. So, um, and there's a lot of discussion about these medicines and the outcomes. Um, and sure, you know, yeah, I started the podcast with discussions about what even happens in the medicine. But to me, the most important discussion is what big fundamental things are we learning to do differently so that we don't, you know, continue um, this legacy of, of, you know, an environment that we call society that creates depression, that promotes depression without, you know, doing it directly. This is what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So we call it a sickness rather than say, well, you know, why are we feeling that way? Isn't it more or less a symptom of something deeper, this deeper issue societally? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's, you know, I, I saw, because years ago when, you know, we were able to go and meet each other in person, <laughs> would go to conferences. Well, I remember this day. <laughs> people, people will remember it's this okay. time. Um, <laughs> there's, um, the, I, I remember seeing somebody do presentations about um, sort of how psychedelics were influencing people's relationship with, with nature and like conscientiousness of, of nature. And, um, you know, the, I have a lot to say about the research methods and so, but it made me think a lot about how it changed mine. And, you know, when I think about it, I'm, I'm thinking about this specific moment being in, in Gabon because so I went to, to Gabon, been initiated in, in Buiti and, and spent a little bit of time there. Um, right which is the, the traditional, one of the main traditional uses of Iboga. And so there, right. I mean, when you look historically at what Buiti came out of, it was a resistance to colonialism there. I mean, in large, in large measure, I mean, there were the coastal Bantu population which was like the largest north to south and, and spread out migration through Africa, um, was living on the coast and got pushed inland in some cases um, where they came in contact with the pygmies who had this sort of very animistic, um, long-standing traditional use of iboga. It wasn't very necessarily ceremonial in the way that we would think of a structured religious context, but they had been using it for a long time. And so you would have, 
I mean, likely seen what we hear the, the stories about it and, and what has been written yeah. is you see whatever normally happens when an, a more agrarian um, group meets a hunter-gatherer group, that there was some conflict there and that the pygmies were using Iboga to sort of um, initiate or build a, a relationship with the Bantus that were moving inland into the forest. And what came out of that was the Bantus mixing the more like fetish oriented ritual stuff with this animistic religion and <clears throat> sort of finding a way to recover many things like one, um, the venereal disease that the you know, French had brought was leading to lower fertility rates amongst the women and the work that they were, people were being put to was kind of divorced from any sort of meaningful um, relationship that people previously would have had with um, society. So it's, it was directly affecting people's identity or their sense of self in relation to the to the world and and others so Buiti became this place to sort of flourish in recreating an identity as a group and as individuals mm -hmm. and it even sort of literally in some cases more than others like there's different traditions of Buiti right mm -hmm. but some of them sort of even took more the Christian story and sort of said like, yeah, look, this uh, stuff that you're writing about, about Eden and this sort of um, plant that opens up consciousness, like we know all about it, it's happening right here. And there's yeah. even an image of when God closes the, um, closes Eden off when Adam and Eve enter or, or exit from it. Um, he places a cherubim with a flaming sword that spins in all directions. And so when in, in Buiti, usually there's this initiatory rites. And then at the end of it, in order to close it, there's this dance that gets done with this torch that sort of, um, at least for me, was resembling that. And I think even literally people would say, you know, we're all of the traditions in the world all meet back here. They all share this these roots um, yes. and so it has always been a resistance to these kinds of structures uh, and I think I see that reflected in how people are coming to try to recover from addiction and do their own sort of uh, individual path of recovery but when I was in in Gabon I think of this one moment sitting outside the temple and, you know, they talk about they're warming up the Buiti. So I wasn't invited in yet, but somebody was explaining, you know, we're animist. We believe that everything in the world has a vibration and that vibration is the same as was present uh, at the big bang. And so if you learn how to interact with the things in the world, then you can learn how to communicate with God. And so they're explaining you know, that here is something, you know, like I, um, they had a, an item in their hand. And I said, I can't 
give this to you because you don't yet know how to be with it, you know? And <laughs> then later in the ceremony, after eating a little bit of wood, you know, invited me to the front and, and I'm trying to walk on the uneven ground and a little bit wobbly and seeing tracers everywhere. And they held it out again and said, now I can show you this because you can see it. And I could, and I could see it because I could see everyone else's relationship to the object because it was something common in the, in the room, right? So I could see, for example, all of the other men who were sitting on the right side of me who had something like it and maybe they decorated or, or adorned it, but I, I could understand that it had a place in a relationship in the, in the ritual and that it meant something. And I could see more than that. You know, so <laughs> then I was able to receive it and have my own relationship with it. And right. there was this kind of sensitivity to working with even very simple objects and the material world that I think it's, it's been difficult for me to maintain. Like I kind of struggle to try to when I work with medicine outside of that to keep like a conversation or a dialogue with the material world and to, to use it in order to remind myself about this living world and keep that, keep that dialogue happening in my life. But it's difficult because we live in a very materialistic paradigm, you know? Right. And actually I think that, you know, what keeps coming up is, is the relationship factor. And you know, what I've realized after working with these medicines for so long is that we don't have very healthy relationships in this world. I mean, there's still war. There's people in conflict all the time. Mm -hmm. Every time you watch a show or a movie, there's, there's conflict and there's not a lot of um, good examples um, of people, you know, who are doing that well. We're still finding our way. We're in our infancy in understanding how to be with one another in healthy ways. Mm -hmm. These medicines are helping with that. And that is the magic that is happening. It's not an overnight thing. An overnight thing though that does happen is we discover what's possible. We, dis we have a hint of who we really are, what's, what we're capable of experiencing. Mm -hmm. That is worth it. That is magic. That is transformation in a way. It transformed us from people who didn't know that, who did. That's a powerful thing. But yes, it's not as simplistic as, yeah, you're no longer an, a person who is, you know, vulnerable to addiction. Well, no, because it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to understand what contributed to that and then for us to do the work to change all of that. And that is, that's considerable work. And so that, that's where it all begins. And um, everybody's going to approach that work according to who they are as individuals. And what I've discovered is that the power of the medicine is that it's, it's so um, unique. So you may take the same chemical as the person next to you. And this is, I think, what the clinical world would all um, focus on. Although, again, I can't say I have a lot of experience with that. But um, the experience you have is going to be entirely unique. And I think that, you know, anybody who works with these psychedelics for long enough starts to respect that. They have to. It is the nature of the experience. It's very unique for each individual. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's so effective is because it 
it has an understanding of us that's far beyond our own understanding of ourselves and provides us with a window into that so that we can, you know, explore our own psyche and start to understand it. Now, a person who holds space for you to do that, um, that's an important role for people to play. And it's just going to happen differently for everybody. You know, I mean, I do this with people and the focus is really on people discovering the answers within themselves because they have it. And the medicine constantly tell us this. It's like we underestimate ourselves and our own capacity for healing and our own capacity for understanding a lot of this stuff uh, because of our own, you know, preconceptions of, of who we are, what we're about mm-hmm. and of our lack of, of good, you know, relationship with ourself in relation mm-hmm. to the world and what's possible in this whole experience and reality itself and how we contribute to that. I mean, yeah. you know, the power that we start to understand that we're, what we're capable of is, is phenomenal. Yeah. I think that there is so much potential to expand how we conceive of being present for each other and being able to care for each other and mm-hmm. what, what that looks like or what that even means and I hope that you're right that it does lead to this deepening of relationships and this deepening of connection and, and intimacy in in community and I because I, I, I just keep thinking like about this that moment that I had where somebody was able to sort of clearly explain to me what their worldview was and then introduce me to it. And so like what I, when I look now at what's happening with psychedelics in like the corporate space or in, you know, and I'm not to universalize, but in the like highly clinical space, it is sort of like they're saying, we are materialists. We believe that you are a bundle of neurons that have been damaged. And when you take this, your little dendrites and whatever in there are going to start <laughs> to uh, wake up a little bit. And you're, um, you know, don't worry when that happens, everything is going to be all fine. And we'll be able to check these little boxes off. And it's like, it's almost like that's what, <laughs> that's what it sounds like. And, and whatever else happens to you in there, it's a hallucination and you'll be back to normal and back to work uh, you know, <laughs> next week. Don't worry about it. Like that's sort of. Is that I, really, do you speak in terms of hallucin- hallucinations rather than visions or insights? I think that there's a, there's a general, general conception that they're, that they're useful, that they allow you to be able to reframe um, memories or, or things in your life. Um, But I think, and I, and I'm, maybe I'm not being completely fair, but I think that there is this sort of like the, the end goal or the end game of the treatment is very different. Right. Like it is to be able to sort of get back to baseline, which is, you know, my my friend Dimitri, who I wrote that article with, he's like, you know, baseline is uh, Black Friday shopping. 
right? Like that's normal, um, healthy when people are like slamming over each other to get into Walmart. Like that's our cultural, that's part of our cultural baseline that we're integrating back into. So I think you're (laughs) right. Like we do need to kind of look at more of a social change. And I think even if it happens with some clinical support, like with Ibogaine, we work with doctors and nurses, you know, but there's a way I think to bring, you know, Dimitri always talks about bringing the arts back in and really looking at it like this is an opportunity to treat somebody. It's, It's, it becomes a reflection of how do we treat each other? And like, even somebody who's going through like the most difficult or darkest thing in their, you know, that they're going to go through in a really long time, we can treat them like royalty and really uh, like celebrate them. And with with Iboga, you know, we have to celebrate them for days. It's a long, (laughs) it's a long time, but really to be able to see it like like that, you know, I, to, to think of it like it is something where how we relate to each other through the experience is so important. And just doing it from behind a clipboard, I think, is, is can be limiting of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that there are all kinds of possibilities um, to work together and to open up to people being able to make their own choices. So if a clinical environment is one that they feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. that could very well actually help them. You know what I mean? Um, and, and for those who find other opportunities appealing, it would be great to see um, you know, the laws allow for that um, and allow for, this is another thing about, idea about um, developing a better relationship, a more respectful relationship for people to respect their decisions and their uniqueness and their capacity to understand what might be best for them. Um, So instead of saying, here's an illness and and this is the remedy, it's like, um, you know, here's a person Mm -hmm. who's experiencing these things, you know, (laughs) And, 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 you know, let's understand how this happened because somewhere inside of them, they do know and let's see what we can, you know, use to help bring that out and and make space for this person to discover. Um, and, and in whatever way that might be. Like, so, I, I mean, personally, when I hear people say hallucination, sometimes I wince, right? But that's, <laughs> I do. But, I mean, if that's how they're experiencing it, then that's how they're experiencing it. Like, I had this discussion with a friend of mine about um about the shamanic communities that I've encountered and how they approach illness. They see, well, the medicines that I work with, um, the, the wisdom that I gain from that is that what we see as illness, this higher consciousness regards as, um, as symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll see a disease and they think, well, that's actually a symptom of something deeper that you know, you're not really looking at. So you won't find it unless you're looking for it. If you understand that that's the case, then you can start to look to understand what's causing that, that symptom. And that's where I'm at now where I, I'm looking at things from that angle. But there are also shamanic communities that see disease as um, dark entities, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, that's a dark uh, spirit or shadow or whatever. And, and we can just move that energy out. And there's been like phenomenal stories about people having really amazing 
experiences where they've felt, you know, cured from serious disease uh, because of that approach. So just because there's a word that's used that's different, I don't, I don't see the difference. So they call it a dark entity. You know, the medical wor world here will call it a disease. They're all just words. And if they approach it in ways that are effective, then who cares what we call it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a matter of your desired outcome and whether you reach that. And maybe even if you don't, you'll learn something along the way and then find another way. And, and this, is, this is a more expansive way of looking at things that, again, the medicines can help with is us saying, you know, instead of this is right and that is wrong, this is all experience and it's all information. And we yeah. can find a way to be at peace with the fact that of everything, even the most tragic things that have happened, you know, and see them from a different perspective that serves us better. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're describing is very psychedelic in the sense of sort of being able to... Am I being very psychedelic? Well, it's, it's <laughs> being able to look at something from this multiplicity of perspectives and, you know, there's certainly times where we need to sort of have one story or another story, or at least in moments, be open to certain, like, I don't know if I go around my life looking at the world like there's dark entities, but there's certainly times in psychedelic experiences where having that or knowing about that was maybe one of the only things that could have explained what was happening in that moment. And it's useful. You know what I mean? Like, sure. How it appeared to me, how it appeared to you was, was sort of like a manifestation of something that you need to see in that way in order to deal with it in a certain way. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's absolutely true. Like approaching things with this multiplicity and um, this openness of perspective is important and i think that is the path and i think um you know the reason why we wrote that article and, and why you reached out is i guess i'm concerned that taking it into the psychiatric framework and into the the legal system and the interests that those systems have to maintain i think will not be as open to all of the necessary multiplicities or, you know, that, um, that would be beneficial there. I think that, uh, I think we'll see environments that are actually quite, quite limiting, but well, that's my, that's my, um, uh, my, my caution and my concern. Yeah. Sure. And, and I understand it full well. I mean, and obviously you struck a chord because a lot of people responded to that. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. And the, these are important discussions to have, and there's um, and and expressing concerns is is an important thing to do. Um, I think it's also important to to have some faith in the medicine to open people up to change change how things are done ultimately. And again, just like with addictions and everything else, it's not going to happen overnight, but they will have their impact. They're pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> And integration is the key because, you know, you have an experience, you experience something profound, you walk away, and it is everybody's individual choice as to what they do with that. But if they really do want to get well, we do know that integration is a piece that, you know, that, that can't be ignored for most people, right? 
And yeah. that involves living differently, looking at the world differently, approaching things differently. And this is going to change everything, everything, including, you know, how we go about things on that level, how we, you know, obviously it's, it's changing laws and, and I don't think it's something that you can buck so easily. I think we know that you can do that and that's the way it might look like from the outside, but hopefully people will start to talk about the things that they really learn from it and start to apply those things and then things can't help but change. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, the thing that occurs to me when thinking about the integration idea, specifically around psychiatry, is that one thing that happens with people who are prescribed a medication is that they'll be, they, they, you can be labeled as medication non-compliant, you know, if you don't sort of follow the exact dosing regime or whatever that they, that they prescribe. Now, when you take something like a psychedelic and you're not necessarily supposed to take it every day, but you're supposed to somehow go and integrate the experience into your life, it's a lot more ambiguous almost what sure. the treatment is then. And so it allows for this sort of like, um, when it doesn't work in terms of like psychiatry's um, you know, story about what's happening and what they're doing. When it doesn't work, we can just sort of suggest to somebody that they maybe didn't integrate it properly or something like that. And we so it's a, lot, it's a lot more ambiguous sort of where the professional responsibility and stuff. So the, and I don't know that that is as relevant in situations where people are just on a spiritual path you know what I mean like it's not they're not necessarily doing it under somebody's care or I think there's a lot there's a lot of um things like like this that will come up as as issues and are worth at least discussing and critiquing but not necessarily about the medicines and their effect and whether they're helpful but about the power structures that come into play through the efforts to to legalize and regulate and i think it's those power structures in particular that need to be examined well and i mean again so the medicines are helping us to to shift how we think about all of this and nobody can um impose these things on us you know we mm -hmm. these are what these are the things that medicine is teaching us if we give that power to others then we have to take responsibility for that so when yeah. you talk to the about the responsibility of a psychiatrist or whatever and i must say i do know some psychiatrists who are working with medicines and changing profoundly themselves mm -hmm. and how they work just like mm -hmm. all of us right so mm -hmm. so again there's there's a lot of uh, diversity happening i think in in those areas too think Thank God, because, yeah. you know, it's reflecting the diversity of us, of, of us as individuals. We're all very unique. Um, but also this responsibility is shifting because the medicines continually teach us that we need to be responsible for ourselves. And that's a, an extremely healthy notion. And and it, it's going to take time to really embody that. But um, yeah. that, again, is is a positive thing that's coming out, you know, of this experience. And just like so many other things, um, we're going to, we, and when I say that, I mean, as a society, as a culture, as, you know, humanity itself, 
when we're introduced to something that is so foreign and so unusual and, and, and so vast in its possibilities, you know, trying to house that in something in a, in a familiar container is, is an obvious thing. It's natural that, that it would be a first response and reaction, you know? And so I think that we have to try to be a little patient Mm-hmm. Understanding that this is going to be, this is just a part of the whole unfolding of our experience with it. You know, people are going to try it on this way and that way. And we'll all find our way. And mm-hmm. another person's way might not be your way, which may not be my way. And being able to accept this, I think, is going to be a big growth factor you know, in, in humanity, because once we start becoming accepting of these things, there's less conflict, there's less judgment, there's more opportunity for us to get to be with each other in healthy ways um, that aren't dictated by, you know, you must do this for us to be together or for us to respect each other or these kinds of things. Um, I wanted to mention, because this whole discussion brought to mind something I'd been thinking of. um, I was working with uh, one of my clients, um, the way that I do hypnosis, one of the major tools I use is, uh, sorry, the way I do integration, I use hypnosis as a tool to help them to delve within and explore their psyche and to come up with these answers and to connect with also these higher levels of consciousness, these entities, even plant medicines that they've worked with previously. And uh, and something that came up, uh, she was a, she's a medical professional and she's looking to expand into um, alternative areas um, with her approach to uh, her patients and to her practice and to uh, her career. And ultimately, and we've done lots of work together, but ultimately she had one experience where she was, you know, deep in this inner world and uh, connected with this, with this higher consciousness that was answering a question or asking a question of her actually in the end, knowing her intentions, which were reinforced through all of our work together. And then this question came, where is the patient in all of this? Mm-hmm. And it really kind of, stopped us both dead. It was one of those profound moments where you go, wow, this is important, right? (laughs) Because we think, okay, this medicine and da-da-da-da-da. And, and, you know, patient-centered care would really look very different. And I suspect through the lens of, of, you know, this, this higher, you know, consciousness way of approaching things would probably even look different than, than what we would, that what we might be able to conceive of at this point. Mm -hmm. So, there's a lot of learning to be done from the medicine itself in terms of what's possible and how we approach things and, and, you know, asking people what they're comfortable with. Um, I, I think that you're right to bring up the DSM, um, to bring up, to question, you know, how we regard people as sick. And because I do remember a time when I was, you know, in that whole realm of psychiatry and there was, and a lot of it had to do with my view of myself at the time, reinforced by everything around me, which of course, later through the medicines I learned is, is, is the way that reality works, really. How we view ourselves in the world is going to be reflected outward. And when you don't feel good about yourself, of course, you know, it's evidenced by everything around you. Um, but there is this idea in that world that the, the sick people, that there is no, that they must be informed by 
you know, the wiser, healthier people around them. And I don't know if that's appropriate anymore, given everything that I've mm -hmm. learned. I, I think that, you know, starting to open people up to the idea that they do, they are, you know, their own healers and that they, they do have great insight. It's a matter of, you know, um, accessing that is really such a, a huge step forward, you know, in, in how we look at, at these states. And that's all they are. They're not sickness. They're a different state of being, you know. Mm -hmm. And to move into better ones is by, you know, allowing them to see how powerful they are and, and how capable they are. Yeah, for sure. And, and also, when they come up again, to understand the fluidity, like to be able to move between states, right? Like, I think that's what... Um, when we talk about neuroplasticity, especially around Ibogaine, I always describe it as, look, it's not like an overnight magical uh, magical bullet that's going to kill this demon. It's, it's helping you change from one state to another state with ease. And when we learn how to be flexible, we can dip into grief and sadness and things that we usually experience as really negative or troubling emotions and we can go into them without becoming um, stuck or as oppressed by them i think i mean oh, to sure. me, that that's a, a a sign of of growth yeah yeah because and and again i think that we do ourselves a disservice by putting such a permanent label on it like you know this mm -hmm. is you are depressed it's like there were days when I wasn't unfortunately mm -hmm. not a lot of them at, at one point before medicines but um understanding the fluidity of it as you say and the fact that this isn't permanent this isn't going to be always the way it is just because you're feeling this way now there's possibilities that exist in this state you know of you understanding more about yourself you know yeah and why that is and how it comes about and then again as psychedelics enter the scene on on a larger scale, I think that we do have an opportunity to see the sick the sickness as being um, a larger issue, not just on an individual level, but you know, if we subject ourselves and one another to abuse and to aggression, we're going to have a reaction. We may call that a sickness, but I suspect it's the aggression and the abuse that's the sickness itself, and that's what we really have to mend. You know. Yeah. Well, I fully agree. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I do think that there's a lot of potential right now for growth and, and learning. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how it unfolds. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, for anybody who wants to reach out and connect with you, do you have some information you can leave them with? Sure. Yeah. So I have a practice uh, called Saba um, Recovery. You can find it at sabaibogaine.com. Saba is a name of a tree. It's C-E-I-B-A. So sabaibogaine.com. And um, you know, we also have a project here where we're working with retreats and specifically with people either in later recovery or not immediately needing to detox and coming and working with Iboga in a way where we do blend sort of this work with um, medical professionals along with um, 
sort of a, a beautiful celebratory ceremonial space as well. And so that project is Iboga Revolution. So ibogarevolution.com. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. So, and that, that's me. I would love to hear from anybody who found this um, conversation interesting. Okay. And they can, uh, they can find your uh, email on there. Yeah. Yeah. You can reach out through, through my site. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks again for joining me. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Ayahuasca Talks. Please visit RebeccaHayden.com for more ayahuasca integration content and for information about working with me and using hypnosis as an empowering integration tool.